never say die! Forty going on fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two hundred and eighty-eight of Forty Going On Fourteen. I am Mike. I'm Joel, and I'm Josh. And you'd have to be crazy to film a film with Alan Arkin, Anthony Perkins, Orson Welles, Martin Sheen, and John Voight, and somehow make it unwatchable. And you'd have to be on a podcast to sit through it for two hours. There's going to be conversation. I'm thinking that right now. <laughs> I may have overplayed my hand there. <laughs> Little spoiler on how I felt about the first half. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so two things. One, uh, we are doing uh, Catch-22, the original 1970s movie with the aforementioned cast that Josh just mentioned. And, and uh, Art Garfunkel. Art, Gar- yes, Art Garfunkel. As the beaver. Yes. No. Wait. What? What? I think I may have watched the wrong thing. Um, If you like Beaver. (laughs) I was going to say, I was going to lead into Pat's not here, but that's okay. We can do that too. Pat's not here. If you like Pat not being here. And Beaver. Like all the other shows on the Podcast Collective, because he's not on any of them. Oh, shows Pat is not on include the Bad Parenting Podcast. I Am Salt Lake. The Dog and Deuce Show. The Portland Beer Club Podcast. And of course, the Red Dead Radio Hour. That was not on that show. That was a strange ending right there. (laughs) Yeah, if you uh, would like to hear some of our older stuff, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, uh, Podchaser.com. You can go there and give us a rating. Spotify, we are on, and uh, iHeartRadio. We're we're all over the place. Um, Please give us a listen and uh, leave us a review either on Podchaser or on iTunes after you finish listening to this show. Yes. I really hope you don't leave us a review now, because that's kind of anticlimactic. Like Catch-22. <laughs> and Pat will be back. Yes, Pat will be back. And uh, if you want to call and leave Pat a message to get well soon, 708-NOW-RAP, 708-669-9727. You can also always reach out to us uh, via email at 40 14 at gmail.com, or send us a tweet at 40 14 Oh, we have an email. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. glad I mentioned that. Yes. Oh. It says, you may also be a winner. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. That, that's inspiring. Yeah. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't think it was Karen. It was in this, it came in this folder called spam, so I'm not entirely sure about Wait, that. people other than Karen contact us? <laughs> I know there's other people out there than Karen, but we love you, Karen. Haiti reached out. <clears throat> but, but yeah. So, uh, yeah. Please give us a listen if you want to give us commentary about this show, previous shows, if you have any ideas or anything like that. And uh, in the meantime, I think it's about that time. Do it. This week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. (laughs) That was a very enthusiastic and sports. I know. I know what's happening. Feeling it. You are on. Joel is 100% Joel today. (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, no. Normally, he's 2% Joel from Concentrate. (laughs) Uh, 98% water. Just have to add three cans of Joel. (laughs) And you'll have a crisp and refreshing drink for your summer. It's Joel-Aid. Tastes like despair. Um, oh. oh, I'm sorry. I went dark there. So anyway, the, the uh, theme for this week is June 24th, 1970, the release of the original Catch-22. All right. So music. 
the top song in the land was The Long and Winding Road by the Beatles. Knocked off by The Love You Save by the Jackson 5. Huh. I'm not sure I know that song. The lo- Love You Save. No, I was going to say Long and Winding say. Road? I know that one. Probably top five Beatles songs for me. It's up top with me. It's great. Yeah, not top three, but top five. Mm. I would Brian? go top. Oh, go I would say either for me top ten. As I come from a very strong Beatles-loving family, so our our love of these songs goes pretty obscure. But o- only deep cuts. Deep cuts only in this house. So anyway, uh, Brian Philip Welch was born June nineteenth, known by his stage name Head. He is a musician, singer, and songwriter. He is one of the guitarists and founding members of the band Korn and his solo project, Love and Death. After becoming a born-again Christian in 2005, Welch left the band to pursue a solo career. He released his debut Christian album, Save Me From Myself, in 2008. He reunited with Korn on stage at the Carolina Rebellion on May 5, 2012. For the first time in seven years, and on May 2, 2013, officially announced rejoining the band. Wow, he took his time coming back. Huh. Now, is it one of the guys from Corn that has a winery? Or no, it's Maynard. Yeah, it's Maynard James Keenan from yeah. Tool and Perfect Circle. Okay, okay. Yeah. He's got his own winery. Hey, I've tried so that's it. what he's doing instead of working on the next album. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, in his defense, I've had it, and it's really good. Is it? It is. Someone should tell him you don't let albums age like wine. You don't just stick them in the cellar for two decades. <laughs> Why can't you not be sober? Oh, drink my wine. Anyway, I don't know. So on July 26, Jimi Hendrix played his hometown of Seattle at Six Stadium, Stadium, where, under the influence of drugs, he verbally abused members of the audience. As you do. <laughs> yeah. I like Seattle at Six Stadium became a tongue twister right in the middle there. <laughs> all along the watchtower you fuckheads <laughs> but the thing is yeah. i i'm pretty sure the the the, uh, the crowd was loving it i highly doubt anyone was like i can't believe what he called me yeah I, I i have no doubt that they were they were into it not realizing that he was probably actually meaning to be verbally abusive they, they just thought it was like an andrew dice clay thing <laughs> i couldn't think of any other that's a weird comparison Emo Phillips? <laughs> Is that better? <laughs> Am I doing this right? <laughs> Jimi Hendrix as played by Emo Phillips. All along the watchtower. <laughs> wow. All right, so Peter O. Phillips, born June 21st, known as Pete Rock, is an American record producer, DJ, and rapper. He rose to prominence in the early 1990s as one half of Pete Rock and CL Smooth. After the duo went their separate ways, Rock's solo career garnered him worldwide respect, but no mainstream success. Along with groups such as Stetasonic, Gangstar, A Tribe Called Quest, and The Roots, Rock played a major role in the merging of elements from jazz into hip-hop. Widely recognized as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all times, he is often mentioned alongside DJ Premier, RZA, and Jay Dilla as one of the mainstays of 1990s hip-hop production. Pete Rock is also the younger cousin of rapper Heavy D. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's it's sad that he didn't, he never like had like a breakout hit or anything like that, but anybody who's responsible for a Tribe Called Quest and the Roots. Well, no, he wasn't associated with them. They, he was just oh. another person along with Stetsasonic and those oh. other people you've actually heard of. Oh, well, anyway, well, sorry about that, Peter. Your, <laughs> your cousin's cool, though. I've heard, I've heard of Pete Rock, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, 
again on the production side of things, not on the. Yeah, I read that the same way first. I was like, holy shit, this guy was somebody. I was like, oh, wait a minute. He was another guy who moved jazz into hip hop. Hmm. So let's talk about his cousin. Heavy D's fantastic. (laughs) Is he, though? I mean, when you compare him to like a tribe called Quest, no. But. Uh, You know, though, I mean, compared to his cousin. Well, I mean, Pete Rock, I mean, like I said, I've heard of Pete Rock. In terms of like when I worked at the record store and stuff, I mean his name came up a lot as far as his production credits. But yeah, Heavy D kind of came and went and okay. I, but he, he will you ever somewhere. turn off now that we found love? Never, never. See, yeah. Have you ever ter- heard a song been like, damn, that's Pete Rock? I got to listen to this whole thing. Well, no, no. See, not that I can like say, like I can call to memory. But anyway. Finally, born June 22nd, Stephen J. Page, along with Ed Robertson, is a founding member of Bare Naked Ladies. He was also the lead singer and primary songwriter of the group until 2009, when he and the band parted ways so he could concentrate on his solo career and his crippling drug addiction. That's no, that was... Wait, really? Stephen J. Page? Something I'm I did not know about. Fairly certain he had a, a, uh, a little nose habit. Ed Robertson uh, stayed with the band and they continued making music, but I'm pretty sure that's what I remember. Are you looking it up? I see. I am. I am. I am looking it up. Uh, But you know what? There's a lot of words there and I don't care that much. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) All right. I got to say that uh, of all the acts I've seen live, definitely Bare Naked Ladies top five. Really? For sure. I've, I've heard they had great stage presence. Like they definitely had a good good show, if not you know the music. Well, yeah, here's I, a, I like their music too, but they give a show of, is similar in some ways to They Might Be Giants. Oh, okay, cool. Here's a uh, a quick article from 2008 where he was uh, busted with cocaine. That was just one of them that I found. Oh, okay. Yeah, one of those candy. He's no heavy D though. Definitely not. All right, moving on to movies. The top movie in the land is the acronym of the week during the week of June 4th of 1970. That is TMFSS, which I'm pretty sure is Turgid Men for Susan Sarandon. (laughs) That was the subtitle of Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) You don't hear the word turgid very often. (laughs) No, no. Unfortunately, that's actually two mules for Sister Sarah, which you're not too far off. Yeah. Was starring Shirley MacLaine and Clint Eastwood. Never seen that Susan one. Susan Sarandon, no. apparently. Yeah, she plays one of the mules. <laughs> Very turgid mule. The turgid mule. <laughs> uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, American filmmaker who directed Boogie Nights, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood. He was born on June 26th in L.A. His films have been nominated for 25 Academy Awards, winning three for cast and crew. Ooh. One of my favorites, although... Uh, the last couple have been, uh, he's definitely, um, doing his own thing, which kudos to him, but, uh, you know, they're, they're not being big marketable successes, Yeah. but, uh, I have, yeah, he's definitely I've, doing something. I found there will be blood at Goodwill for like a buck. So I bought it, but I still haven't watched it. And all I know about it is it involves a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> That's the I, line from it that everybody knows, but I it's, like it a lot. Yeah. It's, it's really, really good. And I liked, um, the master, but it's it's a really slow burn with not much of a payoff. Mm. But uh, when he adapted, um, 
the book. Oh crap! What book was it? With Joaquin Phoenix. I'm drawing a blank now on the name of the movie. Um, that one was a little bit bizarre. And then I haven't seen the Phantom Thread yet, which was his most recent one with uh, Daniel Day Lewis again. Mm. Yeah, were but, you thinking of Inherent Vice? Yes. Maybe? Yeah. Okay. That one was. I mean, it's it was a difficult book to to translate anyway, from what I hear. But yeah, it was really bizarre. I wanted to see that one. We uh, it was one that was recommended. It was one of the favorite directors of my last film professor. It was just a couple of years ago now, and uh, didn't get around to watching that one in class. But he was a big uh, Anderson fan. Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely a, a counted among those legions. All right, Chris O'Donnell, American actor from such movies as School Ties and Batman Forever. Yikes was born in Winnetka, Illinois on June 26th. That's the two <laughs> movies that he goes with? Right. <laughs> like, what the hell, Pat? I appreciate that you did the twee, but School Ties and Batman Forever for a guy who was in Scent of the Woman and... Fried Green Scent... Tomatoes? Fri- oh, I mean, Fried Green Tomatoes was in Three Musketeers. Fried Green Tomatoes was a, was a good movie. Yeah, but he didn't right. have a huge part in it, did he? No, no. No. He was kind of a minor character. But... Yeah, what about Max Payne? I've never yeah. seen him. yeah. No, it's better than Batman Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I like my Batman with nipples. Mm. Bat nipples. Bat nips. All right. Michael Christopher White, born on June 28th, is an American writer, actor, and producer. He has written the screenplays for School of Rock and Nacho Libre. He was the co-creator, executive producer, writer, director, and actor on the HBO series Enlightened. White is also known for his appearances on reality television, competing on two seasons of The Amazing Race and being a runner-up on Survivor. That's a weird resume right there. It's a very strange career, yes. Terry likes bat nips. <laughs> Wait. What? What? It's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference. Yeah, but we weren't even talking about that or Terry Crews. What are you talking about? Well, we were talking about bat nipples, and I didn't get to say my line before we went into the next segment so or bit, so I just was holding on to it. Title your sex tape. I like Terry. Everybody loves Terry. Terry has entered in my in my mind. If somebody does not like Terry Crews, if it goes into the same thing, if they don't like the Muppets, or they don't like like Goonies, or the Beatles. Yeah, well, man, the Beatles. Yeah, not so much the Beatles, but if somebody doesn't like the Muppets, I have I have reservations. Yeah, I think that's the Muppets and Terry Crews. That'd be up on my list. Yeah. Speaking of Terry Crews, we should really do a Terry Crews show. But anyway, sorry. Moving on. Okay. Uh, so TV, top shows in the land were Marcus Welby, MD, The Flip Wilson Show, Here's Lucy, and Ironside. Didn't we just talk about Ironside? I know. <laughs> did. <clears throat> Wasn't that long ago. Uh, June 22nd of this year was the last episode of The Red Skelton Show. And uh, on June 26th, Nick Offerman, who played Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, was born in Joliet, Illinois. He is a prolific actor, writer, comedian, and carpenter. Wait a minute. Nick Offerman and Chris O'Donnell have the same birthday to the day. Born miles apart, as a matter of fact. That That's crazy to me. Well, we know where all the talent went. <laughs> I Dude, wasn't I in Winnetka. Speaking of guys I like, Nick Offerman. Definitely like Nick Offerman. And, connection, Nick Offerman also has nipples. Terry likes Nick Offerman's nipples. <laughs> all right, so Sean Hayes, born June 26th. Yet again, in Chicago, Illinois, is an actor primarily known for playing Jack on Will and Grace. Just Jack. And he was see, on the last episode, on the All in the Family episode. Oh. Sean Hayes and Chris O'Donnell, I could see those two being the same age. 
just like it throws me off that Nick Offerman's the same age. Well, he was he's like Pat. He was born at 45. Yeah, he came out with a, a glass of whiskey in one hand and a Mega Molly's boob no, in the other. A planer in the other. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. All right, and since Patrick is not here. Sports. I'm going to do sports, which should be fun. <laughs> Lots of crazy names yeah. and weird shit. And I know that there's cricket in here somewhere. So uh, in the second game of a doubleheader in Cleveland on June 21st, Detroit Tiger shortstop Cesar Coca Gutierrez wearing a number seven, went seven for seven in a nine to eight, 12 inning victory with one double and six singles. At 5'9 and 155 pound, the weak hitting Gutierrez was not known for his hitting. The bat was immediately sent to Cooperstown, huh, where that's it cool. resides to this day. Huh, that's pretty crazy. What's in Cooperstown? Baseball Hall of Fame. That's what I figured, but I, I'm not into sports. So I'm proud of myself that I knew that. Yeah. Uh, in a feat that may never be duplicated, on June 19th, the New York Yankees' Horace Clark broke up a no-hitter in the ninth inning for second of three times in 28 days. Brutal. Woof. Yeah, you wanted your place in sports stats history? Not today. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that sucks. God, how, how much of a shitter has that got to be to be, get that close to a no-hitter and then get it blown out in the ninth inning? That's... Yeah, and he did it three times in a month. Yeah. That, that's harsh. Well, because you know he did it first, and the team's like, I bet you can't do that again. And he's like, yeah, watch me. Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. All right. Hang on. Here we go. <laughs> Get a drink for this one. <sighs> yeah. Holy shit. Hang on here. Let me open up another one here for this one. Yeah. Okay. Mushtaq Ahmed Malik. Born June 28th as a Pakistani former cricketer who currently acts as a spin bowling coach for the West Indies cricket team. A leg-break googly bowler at his peak, <laughs> he was described as being one of the three best wrist spinners in the world. He so claimed 185 wickets in test cricket and 161 in ODIs. He was at his most prolific internationally between 1995 and 1988, but his most successful years were as a domestic player for Sussex in the early 2000s. Mushtaq was a part of the Pakistan team, which won the 1992 Cricket World Cup, and five years later, he was named as one of the Wisden Cricketers of the Year. During his time with Sussex, he was the leading wicket, wicket, oh, God damn it, wicket Almost taker in the country county championship for five successive seasons and helped the county win the competition in 20, 2003, 2006, and 2007. I'd say overall you did quite well. Stum- uh, I think so. Stumbled up by wicket taker of all the words in there. Uh, but- okay, we got a new word. What does the hell does it mean when you're one of the best three wrist spinners in the world? I mean, that makes sense. Obviously, you're spinning the ball while you're bowling. Maybe the, one of the three best knuckleball throwers in the world? Yeah, it's something like that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. And googly bowler, that's something we haven't heard, but if you combine that with being a good wrist spinner, the whole idea that it's like a knuckleball or a curveball, that equivalent, that makes sense yeah. to me. I think a googly bowler is like a left-handed bowler, because the majority of them are right-handed. Hmm. And he's a leg-break googly bowler, nonetheless. Well, we, we've talked at length about what leg break means what does that mean i it's going straight at the guy's leg oh that's right yeah we for, i totally forgot that you can yeah, chuck the ball at at the batter yeah it's like if it were legal to hit the pitcher in uh baseball it is legal to kind of do that to go for their legs in uh cricket 
Yeah, if you're a leg break, that's that's what you do. If I remember correctly, I think that would make baseball a hell of a lot more interesting if you could actually Mm -hmm. go in for the hit. I mean, granted, they would have to like shorten the distance or some somehow make it that you're not getting hit by a ball that's going 95 miles an hour. Maybe not do drugs that make you be able to throw a ball 95 miles an hour. But, <laughs> um, so anyway, moving on. Good for you, Mushtaq. Um, okay, yeah, it looks like you're not trying to break the guy's leg, but it breaks away from the batsman's leg. It, it is... Oh. Like a curveball. Okay, so yeah, so it looks um, it like fakes him out, like it's going for his legs and makes him go to defend his legs instead of the instead of the wicket. Yeah, looking on Wikipedia, it's got a very uh, useful diagram, like animated, where it shows the ball going to the right and then like right before the batsman line, it hooks left. Oh, okay, so yeah, it's like it it's like uh, uh yeah, just like we said. Did yeah. you say Wikipedia? Somebody's missing out if they're not calling the cricket wiki- Wikipedia Wikipedia. So on June 21st at the FIFA World Cup and final in Mexico City, Brazil, Pele becomes the first team and player to win the World Cup three times, beating Italy 4-1 to one in front of 107,412 hooligans. That's a lot of hooligans. That's a, that's a strange number. You'd be like over 107,000. Yeah, the 412 is kind of a weird... It's very specific. Very specific, yeah. Yeah. Like they're counting hooligans as they're leaving the stadium. One... To who? Yeah. Three. Wait a second. You're three hooligans under one coat. <laughs> Go back and get two more hooligan tickets. You're not a hooligan. You're a ruffian. Get back in line. Oh, fucking ruffian. There are actually 108 total, 108,000 total fans, but 588 of them were well behaved. <laughs> oh. Yeah. All right. So there you go. That's this weekend. Take us out, keyboard Joel. Nah, 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 nah. Huh. I nah, know. Just changing up. Yeah. Trying to be a break leg glee bowler. <laughs> All right. So, Catch 22. Uh, originally, it was a book written by the author Joseph Heller. Uh, he wrote it in 1953, but it was published in 61. Uh, wow. Many people cite it as being the one, one of the most significant novels in the 20th century, along with such things as Joel had mentioned when we were chatting before as uh, Catcher in the Rye and that sort of thing. It uses non-chronological, omniscient, third-person narration. So what that means to us as viewers is that you're going to hear the same story repeated by different views multiple times within this, within the book. That makes sense, and not necessarily in the order they happen. That's mm-hmm. the non-chronological, right? So you'll, which kind of comes around in the in the movie, this 1970s movie. Also, uh, it's set in the World War II, follows the life of Captain Yossarian, uh, who is a bombardier of the B-25 Army Air Force. Uh, most of the events occur in the fictional 256th Squadron on the island of Penosa in the Mediterranean Sea, of just west of Italy. Uh, it basically chronicles the ad- adventures, in quotes, of Yasarian and the other airmen who try to keep sane while flying whatever uh, the limit of missions is before they can go home. Uh, Joseph Heller based this book off his personal experience while in World War II and uh, pulled a lot of the problems from this book directly from things that were going on while he was on duty. He himself flew 60 bombing missions from May to October in 1944. Insane. Jesus. I know, right? <clears throat> uh, he 
obviously survived, um, but it took him quite a few years, 44 to 53, before he could start writing about it. Uh, to quote, it turned Heller into a tortured, funny, deeply peculiar human being. Uh, became very popular. Yeah, I know, right? Became very popular with teenagers at the time. It seemed to embody the feelings that uh, young people had dur- about the Vietnam War, which was just sparking up at the time. And uh, it was a joke that every student who went to college automatically got a copy of Catch-22 and eventually started a cult following, which led to 8 million copies being sold in the United States, which for 1961 is a hell of a feat. Um, John W. Allridge in 1986 uh, wrote a piece, uh, the 25th anniversary, uh, about Catch-22, and he commented that Heller's book presaged the chaos in the world that was to come. Now, what is Catch-22? It's a phrase that's bandied about often, uh, and the description that they use in the movie itself and in the book is that you have to be insane to fly these bombing runs. But any rational person would not want to do it. So if you go to the doctor and say, I'm insane because I don't want to, I want, don't want to do these bombing runs, you're obviously sane because you know that rationally know that you're going to die. So then you have to go back and do more bombing runs. Yeah, like, you're crazy to fly more and sane if you don't want to fly more, but if you're sane, you have to. Right. It's a hell of a catch. That catch 22. It's the, the best. best. There's also the name of the my bar and grill that I owned for a while. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. ironic. Don't you think? No, don't don't no. do that. Don't do yeah, that. No. Um, so yeah, so Catch Twenty Two, nineteen seventies, is uh, directed by Mike Nichols. Uh, uh, great, great director. Yeah, uh, if you might look some of his more uh, prevalent stuff, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. Oh. And one of Val's uh, all-time favorites. She loved Mike Nichols. Oh, really? Oh, we, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. He also did some. I mean, later on, his his resume on this is pretty much amazing. So, you've got uh, Heartburn, Biloxi Blues, Postcards from the Edge, uh, Wolf. But we really don't talk about that one too much. Yeah, we don't talk about yeah. Wolf. But then he re- redeemed himself with the Birdcage in Primary Colors. Um, great director. Uh, he unfortunately, let's see. I think he passed away yeah, in 2014. He, yeah, he passed away not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, this writing credits, of course, Joseph Heller uh, for the novel itself, but the screenplay was written by a one Buck Henry. Who was kind of hard to spot in the cast at first, but uh, had an interesting look. Uh, he had two roles. Uh, Writing-wise, he is also known for writing us out of Catch-22, was a writer for the TV show Get Smart, and also wrote The Graduate, Hmm. among other things. Yeah, he's he's a big name. Yes. But, uh, but yeah. So, Joel, did you you notice his second, outside of playing, um, crud, just lost his name. Uh, Buck Henry? Yeah, Buck Henry, he played um, Colonel Korn. And this, he was also the uh, traffic cop. Was his was his, was his other really small role in here? Huh. I didn't catch that when yeah. I was watching it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if I put it in the trivia or not. If I didn't, I, I won't read it. But apparently, he was. They were trying to get the guy who played the traffic cop to do that. Oh, I'm sorry, like that. Ah, uh, look to Alan Arkin when he was trying to cross the street and follow the girl. But apparently the guy they had cast for it could not get it right. And then finally Buck Henry's like, screw it. I'm putting on the costume. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> well, yeah. went in doubt. Yeah. 
So, uh, as I said before, uh, Alan Arkin plays Yosarian. Fucking chicken? <laughs> uh, Martin Balsam as Colonel Cathcart. Now, the I was watching this one at home, and this is one of those things where you watch this, and the in, through the entire movie, you're like, I know that guy. Yeah. So, Martin Balsam... I mean, every, I mean, granted, everybody knows Alan Arkin. We talked about him not too long ago. We did a show. Uh, what movie did we watch not too long ago that had Alan Arkin in it? Uh, it was a ways back. If you're talking about uh, Going in Style, yeah, yeah, okay, Going in Style. Oh, and I've been watching the uh, Netflix show with him in it. Kaminsky Method. Yes, yes. Uh, but um, Martin Balsam. Was also in uh, All the President's Men and one of my favorite movies, uh, Twelve Angry Men. Get okay, it. yeah. So, uh, Richard Benjamin is Major Danby. Uh, where do you know him from? <laughs> Westworld, The Last of what Sheila, uh, and this this sounds terrible, but what I remember him from is a movie called Saturday the Fourteenth. Oh, yeah, yeah. He he. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those quirky um comedies from the mid 80s uh he was also in another movie that my family loves called uh, love at first bite <laughs> the george hamilton movie yes this is another one of those movies that i know we have zero the gay blade and love at first bite are actually another one that uh, richard benjamin he plays van helsing versus george hamilton as dracula which if we can find a reason to do that, would be amazing. And I'm still wondering why Dracula, who can't go out in the sunlight, is so goddamn tan. Well, I mean, he can go up, can't go out in the sunlight, but that doesn't mean he can't use a tanning booth. Doesn't it, it though? That's a question. I mean, could a, could a vampire use a tanning booth? Well, <laughs> case in point, though, you think about it. When vampires get turned, they remain whatever age and whatnot that they were when they turned. So maybe he just retained his his pigmentation? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he just was, like, really lucked out. <laughs> He's just all of complexion. Normally. Yep. And after Richard Benjamin, we have Art Garfunkel of Garfunkel and Oates. Um, no, of um, Simon, Simon and Garfunkel fame uh, as Nately. Jack Guilford, another one of those guys you go, I know that guy. Yeah. Uh, he was in, he played uh, Bernie Letzkowitz in Cocoon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Been a while since I've seen it, but I, I used to love that movie. Yeah. And character actor, seemed like, if I remember right, he was on a lot of like TV shows. And stuff oh, like yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was on Golden Girls. He was on uh, Magical World of Disney, going all the way back to George Burns, you know, and some TV show called The Duck Factory. <laughs> I love how we find these weird things that nobody's ever heard of. Well, We're like that sounds really interesting. Here we go: <laughs> the Duck Factory, starring Jim Carrey. Huh. What? Right. Uh, and Jack uh, Guilford. Nineteen eighty-four. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll just leave that. Just leave that on the table. We don't have to carry that with us. Uh, as we said before, Buck Henry is Colonel Corn. Bob Newhart as Major Major. Love Bob Newhart. I do, too. Anthony Perkins as Chaplin Tapman. Love Anthony Perkins. Paul Apprentice in a very strange nude scene as Nurse Duckett. And out of the blue, Martin Sheen as Dobbs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Martin Sheen, apparently he was 12. 
John Voight. <laughs> He's doing his best Emilio Estevez impersonation. I know. John Voight, when he was 14, is Milo Minderbender. Orson Welles is Brigadier General Dreedle. And Bob Balaban as Orr. One of those guys that uh, a lot of directors love working with Bob Balaban, but he's never really like a, a leading guy, but mm-hmm. he'll act the hell out of your supporting cast. And that's and a lot of times that's what you need. He's a very strong supporting actor. Yeah. So uh, so some trivia about this movie. Uh, second direct unit director John Jordan refused to wear a harness during the bomber scenes, and while he giving a hand signal to another airplane from the tail gunner position in the camera plane, he lost his grip and fell 4,000 feet to his death. Holy crap. <laughs> That'll teach him to not wear a harness. I know. I was like, oh, okay, John Jordan. I was like, oh, he probably slipped, and you know, they, he's all right. Oh, no, he's dead. So, John Jordan, good decision right there. Rest in peace. I mean, I... That's that's kind of. I bet I bet it was one of those situations. Like you know, what, we'll take the rest of the day off. We'll just. <laughs> so, uh, Orson Welles tried to acquire the rights to the novel so he could film it. Unfortunately, he did not get them, and he had to be content with playing the part of General Dreidel. Um, director Mike Nichols wanted 36 B-25s to create the big U.S. Army Air Force Base, but the budget can stretch to more than 17 flyable Mitchells. It's not the same plane. No. Uh, an additional non-flyable Hulk was acquired in Mexico, made barely variable, and flown with a landing gear down to location, only to be burned and destroyed in the crash landing scene. <laughs> the wreck was then buried in the ground next to the runway, where it is still there to this day. Huh. Road yeah. trip. Yep. Yeah. Uh, George C. Scott turned down the role of playing Colonel Cathcart, saying that I just did that role when I played Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. But he would have been great. He would have been great. Well, I mean, I mean, I cannot think of a time where George C. Scott in the movie has not been amazing. Well, this would have been the first. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. All right. This film also has one of the longest, most complex, uninterrupted scenes ever made. In the scene where two actors talking against the background, 16 of the 17 planes, four groups of four aircraft all took off at the same time. As the scene progresses, the actors entered a building and the same planes were seen through the window climbing into formation. The problem was is that for every take, the production manager had to call the planes back and made them all take off again for every take of the particular scene, and they wound up doing it four times. So that was actually that... they didn't have any budget. That, well, yeah, I know they blew the whole budget on fuel, apparently. Um, that was I'm guessing that was the opening scene. Hmm. Going from the the wrecked house to the stairs to watching the the planes fly off into the distance thing. So, um, since shooting took longer than planned, Art Garfunkel wasn't able to make it back to New York City in time to start creating harmonies for and recording the Simon and Garfunkel album "Bridge Over Troubled Water." Furiously angered by the delay, Paul Simon wrote a song. The only living boy in New York about the incidents. The lyrics, Tom, get your plane right on time. I know you'll partle, go fine. Fly down to Mexico was a thinly veiled attack aimed at Garfunkel, who was the Tom of the earlier incarnation of Simon and Garfunkel called Tom and Jerry, leaving Simon alone in New York City to prepare and produce the bulk of the album himself. Hmm. How very Taylor Swift of him. I know. I was like, Paul Simon, that's kind of a bitch move, man. 
<laughs> and final, unsurprising, uh, Paul Simon was originally supposed to be in the film, but his role was written out. I don't know if that's true, but I want to believe Probably it's true. Probably why it was salty. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so, first question on the movies uh, has always been, is this a first viewing for us? Yes, for me. Yes. Joel? Yes. All right, then. Yes. Let's get into it. <laughs> um, you really have to pay attention in this movie. Because at one point, Alan Arkin is in uniform, and next thing, he's completely naked. Uh, it definitely tried to grasp the uh, cyclical storytelling thing. Um, re- revisiting the death of... Oh, what was the name of the guy who died in the plane, Josh? Nately. Nately? No. Oh. Um, no, you're talking about the new kid. The new kid, yeah. Circling back to the death in, of the new kid, and then the entire movie circling back to exactly what happened at the very beginning of the, of the movie. Um, I, I don't know if the way they structured it was kind of a casualty to their runtime, where it kind of, to me, felt like they had all of these scenes they had to get through because they were in a book that everyone knows and loves, and they rushed through the scenes to check certain boxes and missed important context. Snowden. Snowden, yes. I agree with you on that, Josh. It does seem... Looking at the book sitting on my coffee table in the living room, and after watching the, the miniseries of six 45-minute episodes, this is another testament to books should be miniseries. Because and I think that's that is one third of my big complaints on the, why I hated this movie so much. Uh, well, and I'm still wondering how they had such an amazingly large ensemble, excellent cast of actors. And I ended up feeling the same way. Like I legitimately disliked this movie. Like, okay, I was starting to think I was alone in this. No, no. And you're not alone. I I can tell you right now I'm not gonna be watching this movie again. This is not going into the oh my god, I didn't know how good this was. But the this is another situation where the sum of its parts do not equal wait, what's that phrase? The whole is not equal to the sum of its parts. Right, right. Yeah, that's the, that's what I'm looking for. Because you have got, in all rights, I mean, even I mean, Anthony Perkins, say what you want about him. I mean, he's kind of a quirky dude, but he's a decent actor. Bob Newhart, John Voight, Martin Sheen, Buck Henry, you know, Alan Arkin. This should be an amazing ensemble movie. It really should. I mean, and these are all guys in the prime I mean, the Bob Newhart scene with Major Major, uh, it, it personifies I, one of the commentaries that I made when I was watching this with, the, with Suzanne was, this is what it's like working in corporate America. You're, you, the Major Major thing. You know, we're, we're not sure you're doing your job right. We're not sure that everything's going right. But you know what? We're going to promote you nonetheless just to see if you can get it done if we give you a promotion. Um, did anybody else notice the picture changing in uh, the Major Major scene? No. Um, it goes from Eisenhower, it's Eisenhower to um, uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II. Just lost his name. Churchill? Oh, Churchill, yeah. To Stalin. Okay, then that was probably intentional. Oh, totally intentional. Yeah. But it was one of the things, if you didn't notice it, you know, because they, they wander off from the photo in the background, come back like maybe... 
10, 15 seconds later and then wander off again. So you really kind of have to be paying attention. Um, there's a lot of talent in here. So much of it wasted, in my opinion. I mean, at, at the beginning is actually pretty funny. I'll give it that. But it is so tonally inconsistent, and it leans into this super preachy war as hell narrative that even by 1970 had been done multiple times and better. I agree with you on that point. It seemed like midway, right about the time where um, the uh, scheduled bombing run hit hit the base Mm -hmm. with uh, John Voight with Milo Minderbender setting that all up. Right after that, it took a very dark dip in its yeah, storytelling. When you've got where he uh, flips the guy over and his intestines come out, that should have been a shocking scene, but I felt it wasn't earned. Well, and I, I found myself the entire film going, I should like this. I should be liking this. That's this a, should be good. <laughs> See, and this is what I said halfway through. I'm like, this is totally Joel's movie. And then the scene happened. I'm like, eh. Well, and Alan Arkin was highly underperforming because the guy is a good actor. And I felt like he wasn't even phoning it in. He wasn't even there. And the part where I just, I, 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 I was still had hopes that maybe it would finish strong. And when it got to the scene where he's going to tell Nately's whore that uh, he's dead, that whole sequence in the city, I just was like, you know, the stuff I watch. I mean, I would rather watch I Spit on Your Grave or any one of Rob Zombie's movies 10 times over than to rewatch that scene. It just made me feel gross, dirty, disgusting, and just it just made me upset, like physically upset. I just I was like, this is this is not good. Where the, it, it, it kind of gets worse and worse as every alley he goes down to. Yeah, and it just gets kind of this surreal tone with Eminem Enterprises kind of taking. And I know that you know it's a metaphor for big government or whatever, uh, you know, war as hell, like you were saying. But you know, the guys all lined up for the the whorehouse, and yeah, just him wandering around the streets. I just I did I had zero good feelings because even in the worst movie where there's horrible things happening to people, good people there's still some things about it. You know, there's artistic merit or there's, you know, dialogue or there's, you know, good special effects, whatever. I just, I felt like I was, you know, sitting on the floor of a, of a porno theater, licking the carpet. Yeah. It just That's made me feel maybe a little extreme for what well, I, I hated it. I, I physically had a, 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 a reaction to it. I just, ugh. It just felt to me like they had this switch. And on one side was Gomer Pyle USMC. The other side was Apocalypse Now. And halfway through the movie, they just slammed it from one to the other. Yes. when they And, and it seems like there was this whole metaphor I, for uh, the, mind, the MM Enterprises suddenly becoming this almost kind of Nazi-esque yes. type of eminence in there. I mean, granted... I, one thing I cannot get over is the fact that John Voight was ever young and much less seeing him in this movie and looking like he was 12. Then seeing him riding around in that Jeep where everyone's got the MM on their sleeve now and the, you know, the, the badges and the white hats instead of being MPs or MM. And suddenly he's taken over the whole town as some sort of like uh, a dictator. And that ridiculous freaking line for the whorehouse was just they it seems like like you said Josh they were going with this happy go lucky yeah war sucks type of thing but we're going to try and put a, f- a funny spin on it and then 
slapped you in the face with, you know, uh, uh, I, I love the smell of whatchamacallit in the morning. Yeah, and I am fine with anti-war films that uh, in some way indict the audience for enjoying the spectacle of war. I'm all about that in entertainment. I, I like it when I see it in video games, but you have to earn those moments. It, it was like UA Bowl's mash. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you talk about uh, Alan Arkin phoning it into the point of not being there. It's like Orson Welles is like, oh, I heard you had some extra acting layering around. I'll I'll take advantage of that. Let me pour some mustard on the scenes <laughs> and chow down. Okay. I, I have to say, though, my favorite scenes were the ones with Orson Welles. If I, I love Orson Welles, but he was hamming the shit out of this movie but you know what the thing is is that compared to everything else that was going on he was hamming the shit out of it but it was i will take orson wells hamming the shit out of something over bob newhart hamming the shit out of anything any day that's fair and i i, I like bob newhart too but i i thought he was again wasted and you can't blame bad writing you can't blame bad <laughs> directing like all these people know how to make movies the, the graduate happened before this mm-hmm so what's, I don't know how it went so horribly wrong. I think well, it may have been a situation like, like we see now where there's a popular movie or popular whatever. And they're like, we just got to get this movie out. Well, we haven't finalized X, Y, Z, you know, something is not being done or something is not finished with it. Well, I don't care. Get Alan Arkin. Now in all rights with Yossarian's character, Alan Arkin should have been, more dead on with this is with playing the despondent everything is going to everything's going to blow up in my face type of character because that is what Alan Arkin is specializes in for sure and then to see him do this and then what one thing that I kept going back to um because I'm actually a huge Alan Arkin fan is the movie the um the in-laws you know I don't know if you, have you guys seen that one I don't think so um yeah, I don't think so hang on I I know what it is, but I've not seen it. It's well, this was wasn't made till later. <clears throat> in laws, nineteen seventy nine. It's got um, Ellen Arkin and Peter Falk. Ellen Arkin is a uh, father of a son who's marrying the daughter. Peter Falk is like the f like this espionage esque type of character. It's, it's see it, but Alan Arkin in this movie plays the oh my god, you know that whole character that he has that's carried him his entire career. What is going on? Much better in this. Hmm. I mean, it. I, I my fear is, is that pe there's so many people that saw Catch Twenty Two before they saw any other Alan Arkin movie, and then wrote off Alan Arkin after this. I almost wonder if this isn't <laughs> an example. Like, uh, they talked about, before it actually got made, how many studios wanted to do all three Lord of the Rings as a single, like, 90-minute movie. This is what happens if you let the studios do that. Yeah. Well, and I get that Eminem Enterprises was, you know, a, a statement on, you know, war profiteering or whatever. But that scene on the runway where they're bombing their own bases and they have a deal with the Germans, I mean, it just felt like, I don't know, like, like, like Jane Fonda wrote the script at the time. Pre yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I, it was one of the first words I used to describe it was preachy. And yeah. I, if, even if I agree with what you're saying, if you're preachy, I'm not going to enjoy hearing it. Mm -hmm. There's ways to do that and be subtle and get the point across far more in a, you know, much more effective way 
than than they did. I, I just, yeah, it was like being slapped repeatedly with a dirty towel. I don't yeah. know. And I, I'd say that maybe this uh, benefits very poorly uh, from our perspective, having already seen Apocalypse Now, having already seen Full Metal Jacket, having already seen MASH. But, you know, this didn't catch on, and now we know why. Yeah. Like, it, it's obviously, like, even people that hadn't seen some of those films that hadn't come out yet, they didn't like it back in 1970. There's a reason why there's a war film based on one of the all-time classic books with this incredible cast that I didn't know existed until we started talking about doing this show. Because it sucked. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I... I wish I could say more about this, but unfortunately this is going to be another one of those shows where we're like, yeah, it sucked. Well, you know, I think that sometimes when we do this podcast, the, the worst thing is when we all are sort of vaguely kind of liked it. We're getting a lot more conversation out of how much we hated this one than something where we're like, yeah, it was pretty all right. Well, I mean, well. I think I think part of the reason is, is that watching this and winding up with, you've, you've got characters... Oh, you've got actors that you love. Alan Arkin, Richard Benjamin, Art, well, Arkin, okay, skip that. <laughs> Bob Newhart, uh, Martin freaking Sheen, you know, Orson Welles. I mean, these are Oscar winning, uh, amazing uh, actors that do great stuff. Why? And they were just wasted in this. You know, it's one of those situations where they wanted to, I, I honestly believe that this was it, is that they saw that um, this was getting very, uh, very popular. And they're like, this is the peak of its, uh, of its popularness. We got to get a movie out quick so that we can cash in on this. This is probably 1970, one of the cash in movies of the year. And I never need to see it again. Now, Saturday the 14th. Oh, yeah. Going to see that again tomorrow. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, right. I, I, I'm going to have to wipe this from my memory, to be honest. We need to do a Saturday the 14th movie uh, show. I don't know how we would do this, but anything that has Richard Benjamin and Jeffrey Tambor in it. We'll wait for the inevitable remake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do that. We need to keep having shows. <laughs> All right. Um, can we uh, smack this bitch down anymore? Uh, yeah, I think that I'd like to stop talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so when we get back, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Catch-22, the miniseries that just came out last month, uh, directed by George Clooney. And, uh, yeah, so uh, stick around, and we're going to have more Catch-22 coming right up. See, we can't finish the show until we do the other half of the show, but we don't want to do the other half of the show because we had the beginning of the show. The Catch-23. Is it, though? Fucking chicken? <laughs> All right, we are back. Uh, we're going to talk about Catch-22, the miniseries, which uh, came out 2019, about two, three weeks ago. Uh, brand new. Brand new. Directed by A1, George Clooney. You may have heard of him. Uh, he is known for such movies such as Ocean's Eleven and Bat Nipples. 
Ah, oh. taking the Pat Whaley school of describing film careers. Exactly. And uh, another one um, that kind of coincides with this th- thematically is uh, The Monuments Men. I was going to say it came out 2014. A story... I felt... I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Why are we doing this? Oh, my God. Okay, so 2014, about a team of historians that go into uh, World War II with the objective to save works of art and sculptures that have been being uh, stolen and destroyed by the Nazis. I was going to say, I felt we'd be remiss if we didn't mention No Brother Where Art, though. Mm. That one also. Uh, but, yeah, um, director-wise... Uh, he has a knack for historical drama. Uh, this was kind of a passion project for him. I believe it. Uh, so directed by George Clooney, two episodes. Grant Haslove mm-hmm. is the other name on this. You may know him as being the producer of Argo, Ides of March, and playing Arpid in The Scorpion King. And also playing Dr. Nika in this. Yes. Going to get to that. And who's the third director? Stop doing this to me. And <laughs> Ellen Curris. Ellen Curris. Uh, cinematographer uh, for such things as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Summer of Sam. Um, directorial uh, was actually directed two episodes of The Umbrella Academy and mm-hmm. some Legion, Ozark, and uh, uh, POV, which I have not seen. But. Uh, You've yeah, got me down one. with Legion and Umbrella Academy right there. So, writing credits, Luke Davies, of course, Joseph Heller, and David Michaud. Michaud? Michaud? Michaud, Michaud. 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 Uh, Luke Davies uh, wrote such stuff as Lion, Candy, and Life. Uh, more than recently, you know, he's done some stuff, Beautiful Boy, but his biggest thing has been this Catch-22. And David McCod. Uh apparently the O is less than on above <laughs> his name, uh, was a writer for uh, the Netflix uh, show War Machine. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to mention that. That was Brad Pitt. That's, it was decent. Mm, it was, I got not great, but it was decent. I, I still have that on my watch list. Yeah, it's worth watching once. Yeah. So uh, this stars Christopher Abbott uh, taking over the role of Yasarian. Um, was in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. It comes at night in James White. Uh, I think that he did a great job. Yeah, I mean, he's best known for a supporting role on Girls. Uh, I unfortunately have never seen Girls. Yeah, I mean, that was the it, the pretty big HBO series. Okay, okay. Uh, Chris Kyle Chandler as Colonel Cathcart. Um, he was in Super 8 as Deputy Jackson Lamb back when we did the uh, Goonies Super 8 show. He also was Hamilton Jordan in Argo. To myself, he was the older brother in Game Night. Game Night, yes. <laughs> I and just saw that a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? He was he was just in Godzilla King of Monsters that I just saw the day before I watched the start of the series. Nice. But uh, yeah, Game Night, yeah. great movie. Uh, Daniel David Stewart as Milo. Uh, he doesn't have... Uh, this is his biggest of all the things that he's done. Ravi Gavron is Arfi. Uh, Star is Born. He was in Re- uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Cold Light of Day, and played Farid in Inkheart. Uh, very un- underappreciated movie. I think Inkheart was actually pretty damn good. 
Graham Patrick Martin as Orr. They didn't get a lot of superstars in this one, which I think is great. Uh, yeah. He was in Major Crime and Two and a Half Men, uh, where he played Elridge McElroy. They needed young guys that uh, looked like they were, you know, fresh to the military or fairly oh, yeah. young. Yeah, having your big characters as your, like, senior command officers that drop in and out was a strong choice. Yeah, yeah, and leaving it to the new boys to uh, to handle the whole thing. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Korn, Kevin J. O'Connor, uh, played, and this is the one I love, played Igor in Van Helsing. And then Benny Gabor. Oh, don't Gabor. forget his uh, No, he his played Benny. In... Yep. Benny, yep. you're on the wrong side of the river. Um. Yeah, so Benny from uh, The Mummy. Austin Stoll for Nately in uh, five episodes. Austin Stoll, uh, Bridges Spies, Whiplash. Again, these are all guys that you have not really seen too much of. Um, one A lot guy- of historical film experience, though, just across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis Pullman. And I'm not 100% sure who played Major Major. Or at the, by the end of it, Major 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 Major. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, what is this arse face? I still have not seen any of uh, preacher. A preacher. I'm looking at his thing, and it is not. He looks just like the guy who plays arse face in preacher. Oh, but he was in Bad Times of the El Royale, which I still need to see. Now, who plays Ar- if that's not him? Because I've been watching this entire series thinking that I was watching arse face. <laughs> who the hell is arse face? Ian Coletti. Oh, he was in The Strangers to Pray at Night. Okay. That's why I recognize him. Okay. And to my defense, these two guys look a hell of a lot alike. (laughs) Louis Pullman and Ian Coletti could be brothers. That's my defense on this one. Uh, Grant Heslov as Doc Danica. Just fantastic. Uh, Uh, I think you skipped ahead. Yeah, because we didn't talk about Tessa Ferrer. Oh, yeah, I was getting back Tessa. I wanted to get to Lewis Pullman because I like to say ours face. But Nurse Duckett as Tessa Ferrer. Oh, strike that. Reverse it. Yes. Tessa Ferrer as, as Nurse, Nurse Duckett. Duckett. <laughs> right. What Probably, we... like, only really known to people who watched Grey's Anatomy. She was Dr. Leah Murphy. Right. Uh, more, some of her more re- recent stuff. Uh, Insidious, The Last Key. She played Audrey in that. Uh, as she's been cat, Catch-22. She's got a couple more things, Passing Parade and South of Bix, that are coming up uh, soon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she she was on Grey's Anatomy for five years, and for a person who has the tastes I have, I've watched an embarrassing amount of Grey's Anatomy. Embarrassing. Is it, though? Grey's I mean, when you look at my Netflix stats, the percentage of my Netflix that has been devoted to like when they show like the top number of hours you've watched, I think Grey's Anatomy is still number one with a bullet. See, but I have no reason to, I can't diss you on that because when you look at my steam account, the most played game that I have in there is a money budgeting app. Oh, I thought it was Grey's Anatomy. Is there a Grey's Anatomy game? Probably. Look out, McSteamy. (laughs) All right. Jay Paulson is Chaplin Tappan. Uh, who was X-File number two from Can't Hardly Wait. Great movie. Great movie. Really? I've never Can't, seen it. It just looks so... Can't Hardly Wait? Yeah. Oh, I've never, so, I've never so seen fun. it. It's so fun. Uh, so Clevenger is played by Pico Alexander. It was also in War Machine. And uh, I don't know if you've got a chance to watch Alpha House. 
Mm-mm. It's actually really good. It's on Amazon. Uh, John Goodman, Clark Johnson, Matt Malloy, and Mark Consuelos all play four senators that all wind up living in the same house together. It's kind of weird, but John Goodman. So <laughs> There you go. You had me at Goodman. Right. Uh, George Clooney as Scheisskopf, which uh, part of the trivia is Scheisskopf means shithead in German, but only literally. And apparently Scheisskopf is not a phrase that is used in German. Huh. You know. Yeah, I was going to say something, but yeah. Uh, apparently that's not part of the vernacular for the German crowd, which is saying something because I know for a fact we use Scheisskopf all the time when I was taking German in high school. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Giancarlo Gianni as Giannini. Giannini. Am I saying that? As Marcello. Yeah. Um, he's an amazing Italian actor. Yeah. From Quantum right. of Sil- uh, Solace and Casino Royale, Love and Anarchy. He was also in uh, uh, Silence of the Lamb sequel. He's been doing stuff since the 60s. He's, he's, oh. When you talk about Italian actors, whenever he's on the screen, I'm just riveted. I love oh, watching him work. He he's amazing. He's got 167 different credits to his name. Yeah. So if you're he's not another one of those. Oh, that guy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, look him up if you're not familiar. I mean, and everybody's going to re- remember him from Casino Royale and all the James Bond movies. So, mm-hmm. uh, and Hugh Laurie as Major Coverly. <laughs> he was great for three episodes. Uh, just. <laughs> Uh, a guy who really likes his food. Yeah, it's like, has anyone told Major DeCoverly that he's in a war? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And uh, finally, uh, Julianne Emery as Marion Shaifskoff, uh, who has the, actually does have a Preacher connection. Uh, she plays Laura Featherstone on the TV show Preacher. And also uh-huh. in the, in the uh, TV show Fargo, she plays uh, Ida Thurman. But... Um, God, we gotta find a reason to do preacher. Do we though? I don't yeah, know. I don't. I don't think. I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I've been wanting to watch it. But I mean, I, I liked the comics. It was anyway. Yeah, moving on. Big sidetrack. So this is going to be the first viewing for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, six episodes, forty-five minutes long. Watch them all. I am really, really glad that I watched this before i watch the original yeah i kind of think anyone who is listening could probably just tell from us talking about the cast and whatnot like the change in our demeanor i don't think this is going to be hard to figure out how we felt about these two right i mean i think the 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 cast wise what you had said earlier where you where you give the heavy hitting showing up once in a while uh characters the george clooney the hugh laurie roles that are only going to be in there for a brief moment for three episodes of the six six shot and then hand over everything else to grant Heslov as doc danica as like the sage type character um i really feel that christopher abbott nailed it as, as oh Yasarian. yeah like i really hope that this is a launch of a leading man career because there's a lot of facets to yo-yo and I think he just crushes it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. I 100%, I'm sorry, 115% agree with you on yeah. that. Sad, conflicted, terrified. Confused. Like, yeah. 
I mean, he was yeah. he's trying to make sense of a situation that he has absolutely no control over. And it's I I, I like how he keeps going back to uh, to um, Dr. Nika for advice and how Dr. Nika is like, look, this is the way it is and how he explains the catch 22 to him. You know, I Doc, I think in this one had a lot better role than he did in the original. He, Every, he everybody did, yeah, yeah. Um, even Major Major with the whole I, I that may have been my favorite scene because working in corporate America, working in the, in the companies that I have, the Major Major scene where, well, he's on the schedule. Well, he's not a major. Well, why don't we just promote him? He's already on the schedule. He's and they start naming off what he's already booked for. Yeah, and it's easier to just promote him than to get him off. The, or to have the, to explain, you know. Right. I, and that's the thing is like they would rather promote a guy who has no reason to be promoted than go in and say, "Oh man, the guy's name is actually Major, Major, Major." Our mistake. Yeah, and that's the thing is they'd rather make a huge important mistake than admit a minor funny one. Mm-hmm. And that to me sums up the entire movie because here you're taking all of these things that they're, you know, um, satirizing and that they're, you know, preaching against and they're making it subtle, but it makes an even bigger impact than slapping you in the face with it. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to the horrors of war stuff, I I feel this earns it where the movie didn't. Well, even Snowden, even though he only had like, a scene before they're up in the plane and flying, you generally cared about him. And when the same thing happens to him that happened in the original version, you actually feel something at that point. That's the thing about the original version is that Snowden kept showing up and he's dying and you know, he's dying. I'm so cold and the whole line, but there was absolutely no lead in into why we should have any sort of emotion for that character. Other than just, it's the horrors of war. Right. Yeah. War sucks. In yeah, this and that's one, the thing is war sucks is not an interesting take in this. It's like, it's not just that war sucks. It's that particular institutional failures create pointless situations where people die and they have no say in it. They don't understand why sometimes they even know it's pointless and the army just shrugs. They're like, yep, it's pointless. Go do it. Yep. And it's like when Scheitzkopf comes up and there's the whole thing with Yo-Yo having an affair with his wife, and he's essentially trying to kill him to get back at him for having an affair with his wife but by not letting him go. I don't know if you guys caught that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's that's something that he had the power to do and probably happened. You know, for all we know, that was a, a thing that was something that happened at some point. But Well, uh, I mean, it, in the way of Snowden for the brief moment that Snowden was on the screen, there was a, you had a connection with him because I think they, the point where they introduced him, which I think was episode four or five, it wasn't six. I know it wasn't that late, but four or no. five, when they introduce him, you only initially get an introduction. That's a couple, maybe a minute long, but at that point, Yosarian is so jaded and so defeated by what's going on around him, Snowden's entrance and his green, wide-eyed, I'm here to I'm, I'm here to do what I need to do type of attitude is is ref- almost refreshing. 
You know, it's like you see this character, you see Snowden show up, and you're like, wow, he's, you know, he's a new, he has a positive outlook, he's he's here to do his job, and dead. Well, yeah. and what makes it even more impactful is uh, when Yo-Yo's like, he's like, what's your job? And he's like, I'm a tail gunner. He's like, well, just just stay right here, just hang out here. And ultimately, if he wouldn't have been there, if he would have been at his actual post, he may not have been shot. Well, I think that's another thing that goes through this entire show is that nobody should ever ask Yo uh, Yo to make a decision about anything. Well, yeah, there's a through line where people at various points just tell them, you know what, this sucks, but you know, you do it and it'll be over. And as bad as the military organization is, there's an argument to be made that his experience might have been a little better if he'd just done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not an argument that is necessarily in line with the themes of the story that's being told. But someone could make an argument that his life would have been better if he just sucked it up and done what he was told. And what about the fact that they told this in a, a much more chronological um story like the narrative was much more chronological than the original and not only with the fact that it was a miniseries made it made it better because they could cover more ground and you could establish characters but by telling it in that order there was a cause and effect there was i think it worked better now maybe in the book you know probably not obviously but here it, it made more sense in terms of seeing it on this you know the screen and that's a case of understanding when you adapt one form of media to another the changes you have to make because some things work in a book that won't work on screen and the miniseries runners understood that and the filmmakers somehow didn't and it just baffles me that the same guys that came up with a graduate didn't didn't get that it's it's it is upsetting because yeah, they, I don't want to go back to bitching about yeah, the movie, let, but. yeah, let's done with <laughs> let, let's talk about the good stuff going on in this one. I will stand by what I said earlier: is that any series of books or any book that is not a novella should be done in multiple parts. There is no way that you can tell this story with any sort of rational impact to a to a viewer and not have it be at least three three movie shows whatever you you just can't get that emotional attachment to the characters i mean the first episode yosarian you know i i was at i was attached to him and i liked him but by episode three i was literally concerned and worried about yo-yo i mean i had made a, an attachment to him in his being in a situation where he has no control and decisions are being made for him by people that have no connection to his well-being well and and um uh kyle chandler's portrayal of cathcart uh i mean he was a numbers guy all he wanted was to look good on paper mm -hmm. he wasn't thinking about the lives that he was risking or that there was even really a benefit to what he was doing it's just like don't you want to be Aren't you proud that you're part of the the highest, you know, uh, man to mission ratio in in the the army or whatever? And it's like, not really. What well, good is you, that? You look at the senior command, and they've each got like a vice that they personify. You've got Cathcart's like hyper masculinity, wanting all the honor and the glory. You've got uh, the wrath of Shyskop. This is just a fun. Thing to say, Wrath of <laughs> Shy Stuff. And you've got Major DeCoverly, who is just 
supremely self-interested and almost just ignorant of everything else that's going on around him. And you manage to have these characters personify these institutional vices without being preachy. Just being able to pull that off is awesome. Yeah. And I never felt like I was being preached to. I never felt like they were slapping me in the face with the message of the book. I felt like they were making something entertaining that had an underlying message that if you were paying attention was going to sink in, whether you wanted it to or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, can I just say that, that the portrayal of Milo was a thousand times better than, than Oh the my God. Yeah. A hundred percent. Milo was a, a much more interesting character and a lot more likable character, because I'll tell you when in the original, I wanted nothing to do with that man that he, and they got the same point across with this. It did. It did that. He was, he, he was straight up a, uh, um, a war war profiteer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and granted creating the, um, MM, uh, what uh, syndicate. Oh, the syndicate. Yeah. MM syndicate. You know, that's in the whole thing was, was crazy, but they played it off in a way that he was not, as much as a asshole. <laughs> yeah. For a long time, you kind of like want him to get away with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and, he wasn't unlikable. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, he wasn't unlikable, but at the same time, he was definitely, I, I just, I love Milo's ability. To be like, Hey, you want eggs? We got eggs. You know, he, the way he was able to, I don't want to say manipulate, but <sighs> no, I think that's the right word. Yeah, yeah that is, saying, I was going to say he he completely manipulates literally everybody that that he in, encounters because they're they are um you know of, of course you want better food of course you want a truckload of watermelons of course you want uh those the, I think one one of my favorite scenes between him and Hugh Laurie is when he brings him the pork chops or the, um, sorry, the, the lamb, lamb, lamb chops. chops. And it just costs you one small favor. Yep. And next thing and you he know, was, everybody owes him a favor. And he was talking so fast that they really didn't have time to think about it. They just heard, you know, I get this if I do this. Mm-hmm. And they weren't thinking about the bigger picture. And it just, it it constantly got bigger and bigger and bigger to where, you know, he's, he's in positions of power in other parts of the world because of these, you know, trades that just kept getting larger. And he only flew, I think he said, what, five or six missions? Yeah. And got out of it because he, he conned his way into being, you know, the mess sergeant or mess, whatever captain you call it and took the other guy's position. Mm-hmm. No. And, and that was actually a great scene too. What do you mean? I'm the mess. I'm the mess sergeant. Ah, well, you know, I'd have, I'd have to go ask about that. <laughs> it's yeah. And he didn't even come off as an asshole in that. He's like, well, it's, it, that's what they tell me I'm doing now. Sorry about that. But we're up to me. Yeah. I mean, his character was conniving but likable, you know. And I think another another portion of it where I think Yosarian took a weird turn was when he changed the bombing run, when he moved the string. But I don't think he realized what he was actually doing. I think in his mind, he's like, if I move this, I don't have to fly. But he didn't think about the bigger repercussions of. Hugh Laurie ending up in Nazi territory and becoming a prisoner of war, yeah. which was a pretty f- funny scene when he w- opens up the doors and it's full of Nazis in that church was 
pretty damn funny. But I think that's almost a theme of Yossarian's entire situation is he doesn't realize what his decisions are doing. Well, and people don't care about how their decisions affect him. So he gets to a point where why should he care about how his decisions affect others? Because the difference is, is that Yossarian actually cares about people. I mean, he Mm -hmm. wants to get away from every, he wants to leave this place. But at the same time, he makes a decision and tells um, Snowden, you know, don't sit in the tail because he just saw, um, uh, what's the guy who wanted to marry the whore? Nately. Nately. He just saw Nately literally fall off the back of the plane. Mm-hmm. He watched Nately plunge to his death. So he's like, you know, if you're t- just just stay up here, you'll be safer. That decision affects him, kills Snowden, and a f- sets off the whole "I'm not going to wear a uniform anymore" situation. <laughs> so you then well, you've got Christopher it- Abbott walking around Starkers for the entire time. And the original, and in the original film, they tried to get that point across with the one scene where he's talking to um, Cathcart and um, Buck Henry, and he's like, "All you have to do is like us," you know. But it didn't work there. Here, it's it's like the entire movie. That's an ongoing theme, and it works really, really well. Um, and I don't, I know Josh hasn't seen it yet, so we, I don't want to spoil the actual event, but. You know what I'm talking about, Mike, when I say the end of episode three. Holy shit. No, no, no. Uh, holy end of shit. Episode four, indeed. you mean? Oh, four. Okay. Yeah. Episode four. That was a holy shit moment. Yeah. Um, which, honestly, okay, I, I, I'm going to spoil a little bit for you, Josh. Kid, That's fine. Kid I don't Sam, know if it's really a spoiler. Kid Samson's death, which uh, coincided with. Kid Samson's character was actually. Um, da, 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 what's his name? Mindbender? No. G.I. Joe? G- yeah, <laughs> uh, large something or other, or big something or other. There was the guy in the movie who got hit by the plane mm-hmm. is actually, uh, in the, in the TV show is, um, Kid Samson. Okay. And that death, as as comedic as they played it off in the original, where you see him get hit by the plane and there's just the hips and the torso left that fall into the sea, and everybody's like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Oh, the doc is in the plane, too. Uh, okay, the that scene I did kind of dig and in the original because the, the whole time they're going, on, oh, no, the doc was in the plane, and the whole time he's going, I'm standing right here, right after they had admitted that, uh, he put him on his docket so that way he wouldn't have to do so many flights. Yeah. But the death of Kid Samson is striking. It, it Yeah, it, it leaves a mark. It was intense. And the way they play it off in the miniseries, like, I was, I was watching it with the girls. Because after the first couple scenes, I mean, initially after the first scene of the show, you're okay for watching it with the family, if you don't mind a little bit of like war gore but after that episode at the after the end of episode four the girls wanted nothing to do with this show they're like i'm done that's it (laughs) if if you want the horrors of war (laughs) it has nothing to do with the actual war but it's 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 horrific and uh it's it's powerful i mean like i said versus the original where it's almost played off for laughs in a way this part you're actually like oh my god what the fuck just happened holy shit yeah 
And you uh, can see it all over Yosarian's face. Ugh. Just the look on his face sells the whole thing, let alone everything else that's going on. Yeah. I I think they because they managed to, I don't want to say stretch it out, because it's not like they were at a loss for material, but the fact that they had six episodes or were able to extend this to six to ten or whatever episodes made this so much better mm-hmm. than the TV show. I mean, than the movie. And I, I, at some point before we get done, I want to talk about the two endings. Again, I, I, I like Josh said, he didn't really mind if we. I, no, it. no, good. Go ahead and say what you got to say. Because oh shit, oh I'll be right back. Or don't. I'm sorry. Did Joel's house <laughs> catch on fire? What the hell just happened? I. D- I don't, mark the time. I don't. Yeah, maybe. That's Sorry, my alarm went off. Uh, it's been having some problems. Okay, hang on. <laughs> Let me just... <laughs> I figured you guys would just keep talking. Well, me, but you. you started on a topic that I can't contribute to. Yeah, and I didn't know where you were going. And we didn't know how long you were going to be gone. <laughs> and I thought your house was on fire. <laughs> it's it's not on fire. Okay, good. Good. All it's right, what were you saying? Oh, hang on. I'll, uh, I'll count us yeah. back in. Five, four, three, two, one. So... The the difference between the two endings that I, I just wanted to touch on. Um, so the ending of the original, after he makes a deal and decides it's not what he really wants to do, he hops in a little inflatable raft and tries to make a run for it, um, a la the guy that ended up in Sweden. This one, you know, it, since it's a, a narrative and he's been walking around naked the whole time, they show him in the in the bombardier's seat of the plane, still flying the missions, but completely naked and just kind of, I felt like he, he was, had accepted his fate and he was just not going to care anymore. I mean, he's going to do his job and keep going until they eventually let him go, but he was going to do it his way. I think you're, I think you're right, but it's not that he had accepted his fate. I think it had finally broken him that he realized that he's, he's not getting out of there. You know they're going to keep raising the the times. They're going to keep raising the uh, the flights that he has to do. He's going to keep. They're going to keep working to keep him there, and not not ever go home. I think that's the, what we're looking at is him. His brain just snapping on him, and him reaching the point where he's like, "This is my life. I'm going to die in this plane eventually." And that's why he. You know, it's it's. I forget what he kept saying to himself, just give it up, just give it up or something like that, or just accept it. I forgot. But he, um, I, I think he completely snaps. And that's what we're seeing is his his brain finally giving in to the fact that he is going to die in one of these planes. And I think it held, either way, it definitely held more weight. Because in the original one, it's like, okay, we went through this completely shithole of a of a downturn and now we're going to end it on a haha funny moment you know kind of big john philip Sousa marching band outro with him paddling out to sea probably going to die somewhere alone um here it, it it did it felt like it felt like a solid ending to the story mm. and i don't know where the book ends or you know what his mind is like or what his thought process is but this, it was a logical conclusion to me, even though it was a little open-ended. Cool. 
So uh, you want to do thumbs up, thumbs down, or is it pretty obvious? Yeah, well, we should run through it as a formality. Right. So it's what we do. The original? Massive thumbs down from me, for sure. Thumbs down. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, cast and, uh, and everything, but yeah, I I feel sorry for watching it. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have watched, I, I will say we have watched a hell of a lot worse for this show. Um, I'd rather watch Transmorph. Yeah. Bottom 25%, as far as I'm concerned, of everything we've consumed for this podcast. I'd rather watch Transmorphers again. <laughs> Woof. That says a lot right there. Uh, Catch-22, the miniseries. Sounds like a big thumbs up all the way around. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It was amazing. I, I actually considered watching it again. It was it was incredibly solid. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Um, I I I kind of want to see if they're going to do the uh, the sequel. They actually the Heller uh, actually wrote a sequel to this book. Really? Yeah. It's not actually called Catch Twenty Three, right? No, unfortunately okay. not. I in fact completely forgot. I just know that there's one. He did write a sequel to it about what happens to everybody once they're back in uh, civilization after the war. Huh. All right. Yeah. So, Joel, what are we doing next year? Next year? Next week? <laughs> next week, we are, we are doing something we've never done before. Um, we're going to be talking about Good Omens. Holy cats. This is a book and a TV show. We are reading. I read a lot. I like words. Um, yeah. So we are uh, have all read or have are finishing up the uh, Good Omens book by Terry Pratchett and by Neil Gaiman and are going to be watching the Amazon series that just released a couple weeks ago or like last week. No, the, on the 31st, yeah. Yeah, on the 31st of uh, May uh, starring what I who plays the angel, Joel? Oh, I, all I remember is David Tennant. I can't yeah, remember the name. David Tennant, David Tennant is a super cool demon. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. If uh, you have your thoughts about our upcoming shows, you have show ideas for us, or you have anything at all to say about Catch-22, let us know. Give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And like I said, if you like this, go back and listen to our older stuff. Uh, uh, you've got 286 other shows out there. Uh, we are... What? 287. God bless it. Uh, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and leave us some reviews. Let us know what you think, uh, even if it's just emailing us at 40 14 at gmail.com. We appreciate and uh, like to hear from you guys. So uh, until then, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Terry likes 40 going on 14. Terry doesn't like Catch 22, the movie. Terry's smart. Feel like Terry. <laughs> You, you want to make a sitcom out of Jamie Lannister after he's had his hand cut off.